Evening, beautiful family. My back is fine, thank you. <laughs> so I can stand here for 30 minutes and, and, pre- and preach the word too. <laughs> Two weeks ago, you had a sermon about a very minor prophet called Micaiah, Old Testament prophet. And then last week, Jono preached about a minor prophet by the name of Jonah, also from the Old Testament. Tonight, another very little known prophet, but from the New Testament, and his name is Agabus. Three prophets in a row. I wonder if God is saying something to us about <laughs> prophecy and the gift of prophecy. I think he is. Let me tell you the reason why I selected Agabus as the subject matter tonight. It's because he carries prophecy from the Old Testament into the New Testament and thus through into the church of our day. It's like a bridge between old and new. He, he kind of behaves like an Old Testament prophet, but his prophecy is quite typical of New Testament prophecy and modern day prophecy. So we can learn a lot from him. Just from his short appearance in scripture, there's a lot that we can learn from him about this wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul later develops the whole issue of prophecy. And he identifies it as something very important from the church. So if it was important for the church then, one of the nine manifestations of the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. If it's as important then, it's important to us now. Something we should know about, something we should embrace, something we should practice. Okay, first of all, I want to put up a timeline. We'll leave it up for a a minute or two so you can have a look at it. It's to give you the context of Agapus, because he makes these two little guest appearances in the Scripture, and then he disappears. So as I'm reading the Scripture just now, and as I preach, you can get some idea of where it fits in. Then we'll take it off the screen so you can actually listen rather than... Look at the numbers. Sorry, Colleen, do you want to take a shot? <laughs> okay, if, you, if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Acts 21, 8 to 14. It won't be up on the screen because we're leaving that timeline there for a while. Acts 21, verses 8 through 14. It reads as follows. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And after we'd been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. Okay, this is not the first mention of prophecy in the New Testament. I mean, Agabus himself appears in Acts chapter 11. And he prophesied that a great famine would sweep the Roman world around the Judean area. And we know from the secular history books that's exactly what happened. In fact, there was a succession of about four great droughts leading to famine that hit that area shortly after Agabus had prophesied. Then Paul, on uh, when he was at Antioch, I don't know if you remember the story, the church of Antioch, Paul was still called Saul in those days, and he'd gone and collected Barnabas and brought Barnabas in because there was like a revival breaking out at Antioch. 
And it says that one day they were praying that there were prophets and teachers present. They make the point in the scripture. There were prophets and teachers present. And then it says, as they were praying and worshipping God, the Holy Spirit said, set aside for me, set apart for me, Saul and Barnabas for the word, work that I've, I've give, I have for them to do. Then we have the next instance of prophecy in the New Testament, Acts 13, where Paul prophesies to a man called Bar-Jesus, a false prophet. It's quite dramatic. And when he comes and stands in this man's face and says, you son of the devil, and then he reprimands him, and then he says something highly prophetic. He says, I tell you this, you will go blind. Darkness will descend upon you for a season. I, you darken your spirit and darkness will fall upon your whole being and you will know who God really is. And it came true almost instantly. The poor man was groping around for quite some time. Then he recovered, for God is merciful. He had, he had learned his lesson. Then, on his way to Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 20, on his final trip up to Jerusalem, he stops at the coast and calls for the Ephesian elders. And it's a very poignant, beautiful um, scene as he, as he kneels with them and prays. But then he starts to say prophetic things to him. He says, for instance, you will not see me again. I'm going to Jerusalem. And they cried together because they knew that he was telling them the truth. Prophetically, he knew what was happening. And he declared this to them. Then you've got the instance here in Caesarea where he's staying with Philip. Philip was one of the first seven deacons. But he was later known as Philip the Evangelist because he evangelized mightily. And he had four unmarried daughters by this time. And they prophesied. So prophecy was happening all the time in different contexts in this New Testament church. Alive and well and, and powerful. Now, while he was still in Caesarea... Agabus makes his second appearance. He comes down from Jerusalem and he prophesies concerning Paul. Now, he does what a typical Old Testament prophet does. He does something symbolic. So he takes Paul's belt and he ties his hands, his own hands, and then he ties his own feet. And then he says, in this way, you're going to be grabbed hold of by the Jews who will bind you hand and foot and hand you over to the Gentiles, represented by the, the Roman government of the day. Now, I must say, I get so irritated sometimes when I read secular commentaries or, or liberal commentaries on this. Because they try and disprove the scriptures all the time. They keep saying, well, yeah, see, here's an instant again of the Bible's not accurate, you see. Because how can a belt be that long that you can tie both your hands and your feet? Duh. Try tying them first and then try tying the legs first. After that. Oh, and there's another way you can do it. You can hog tie somebody and you can get their hands and feet together at the same time. And that's just by the by though. Then he says, again as a typical Old Testament prophet, the Holy Spirit says, and then he declares, the Jews will grab this man, they'll bind him hand and foot, and they'll hand him over to the Gentiles. Now what actually happened after this is as follows, very shortly after this. Paul's in the temple area. He wasn't there to preach. Now often he used to go into the temple area and preach and so on. He wasn't preaching this time. He was actually going through purification rituals for himself and his team because, because the, the festivals were upon them. Some Jews there saw him and recognized him. Said, hey, here's the agitator. Here's this man, Paul, who's preaching heresy. Here's the man who's teaching us about a new king, Jesus, who's come, etc., etc. And it, it, a crowd gravitates. 
And they start beating Paul up with the intent of killing him. So it's like an ugly mob scene. And you can imagine Paul is being thrashed and beaten and kicked and so on. The Roman centurion in charge of of the guard in Jerusalem hears this riot. So he takes a platoon of his soldiers, rushes down to restore order, because that was his job, maintaining order in Jerusalem. And to maintain the order, he, the Roman, grabs hold of Paul, shackles him hand and foot, and takes him off to prison. So at first blush, it seems as if Agabus has got this bit wrong, right? It wasn't the Jews who bound him hand and foot and then handed him over to the Gentiles. It was the Gentiles who bound him hand and foot in order to rescue him from the Jews. But what I want you to consider is this, that the essence of the prophecy was bang on the money. Forget about the details, and I'll explain why, why some New Testament prophecies and today's prophecies often are a little bit hairy. A little bit rough around the edges like this one. But the essence is right. He was taken. He was laid hold on by the Jews. He was arrested. And he was taken away by Gentiles, by the Romans. So the prophecy was accurate enough to be real. And God-given. But you know, the actual phrase of the prophecy concerned me. It didn't concern me. It kind of piqued my interest. Because I thought... Where in Scripture have I heard words so similar to this? It seemed like an echo of something that I'd heard in Scriptures before. So I went hunting for it and I found it. In Mark chapter 10, verse 33, Jesus is telling His disciples what's going to happen to Him, the Lord Jesus. And He says these words, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that's Him, will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law, that's the Jews, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. It's eerie. It is so close. Now, here's the thing. We know that Paul had spent time with Peter. We know that Peter would almost certainly have heard Jesus saying these things because he was part of that band of disciples who Jesus was addressing. I wonder, and it is just a wondering, it's, it's, it's just a thought, I wonder if Peter had told Paul about what Jesus had said. Because if he had, then the way that Agabus actually phrases this prophecy would have been a wonderful, intimate confirmation. Because he would have recognized in the words, in the phrasing, Ah, my Lord said words so similar. And to him it would have been a confirmation. God is saying to me, You're going to be walking in my footsteps, my son. Don't worry, I'll be with you. You might be knocked around, you might be arrested, you might all bad things might happen to you, but I am with you and you're going for a purpose to testify to the Gentiles and thus to the world. Now, I can't be dogmatic on that point, but it does point to something which tells us about New Testament prophecy. And what it tells us is that one of the major purposes of prophecy, certainly a major purpose, is not to give direction, but to confirm. Prophecy in our day is almost always to confirm something that God has already said in some other way. Very, very seldom does a word of prophecy come in a congregation, for instance, and you say, Oh, wow, 
That's brand new. Nobody's ever said that before. Normally it's, I know that. That sits well with my spirit for the Holy Spirit has been already telling me that time and time again. Paul, you see, knew exactly where he was going. This was not a new word to him. It was a word of confirmation. Listen to what he says to the Ephesian elders in, in Acts chapter 20, when he's, as I mentioned just now, when he's praying for them and, and telling them he's going. He says this, And now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. Compelled by the Spirit. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. He knew. In every city on his way, the Holy Spirit had said this to him. So when Agabus appears on the scene, this is not a directive prophecy to him. It's a wonderful confirmation. So he would have accepted it as a word from God saying, You're with me, Lord. You're confirming powerfully through one of your prophets. I know your word for me. So let's pause a little. Just recap what we can learn from Agapus. First of all, major purpose of prophecy is to prepare us. Prepare us for the present or to prepare us for the future. In Paul's case, it was to prepare him for the hardships that were about to come. So there would be no shock. So he wasn't yet to arrive in Jerusalem and then these terrible things happen. And he says, oh Lord, why me? This is terrible. What's happening? I feel like chicken licking the skull. It's just falling on my head. No. God had told him. When that mob grabbed hold of him, I know. It's okay. And I know I'm coming through the other end because God has given me a task to testify to the Gentiles. Maybe for us in a church, it's words about pending revival. You know, it's nine years ago in September when we first received prophecy about revival breaking out. Then a year after that, two other prophecies in one service from two strangers confirming that again. And as a result, we've been praying almost every Monday night that those prophetic words would be fulfilled. And every week that goes by in our nation right now, we become more and more aware that revival is the only thing that's going to pull us through. Oh, wow, I'm so glad we've been praying for revival for eight years. And we're going to keep on praying until we see it break like the dawn over our land. Again, prophecy is usually to confirm rather than direct. Guys, church history is replete with horror stories of people who have received directive prophecies, they have not tested them properly, and it's nearly ruined them. I've heard of and spoken to many people over over the decades where, I'll give you an example, bright-eyed young man, full of the Spirit of God, full of passion, just wanting to serve God, and some person trots up to him at a service one day and says, Young man, the Holy Spirit says, Go to China. He has a great work for you there. The young guy says, Yes, sir. No, sir. Packs his bag, sells up everything, and goes to China. And ten years later, he comes back broken. And disillusioned. Why? Because that was not God's direction to him anyway. There was no confirmation. 
prophecy, not always, but usually is a confirmation, not a direction. Another thing we can learn from Agabus, it's unwise in the church of today to start off as Agabus did, like an Old Testament prophet. Thus saith the Lord. Agabus starts, the Holy Spirit says. Not wise. Because if we say, thus saith the Lord, we are implying authority and we are implying huge confidence. But actually we frail and we're fragile and, and we, are, we are tainted. You know, Old Testament prophets were trained their whole lives to be pure vessels for the Holy Spirit. And as I said to the uh, 10 o'clock service, hands up those of you who have spent the last 30 or 40 years in the wilderness eating locusts and wild honey and being totally sanctified for God. No. Elijah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, men totally consecrated and set aside for God. But today he works through us tainted, ordinary, fallible vessels. Much better to say, if you feel God is saying something, to actually say, I think this is what God's saying. And humbly offer it. I think this is what the Holy Spirit is saying, guys. Now, now you test it, and you weigh it. Because we are, I'll cover that in a minute. We are called to test these things. You see, prophecy in our day is filtered through our humanity a flawed humanity. So it contains something of what God is saying, but it also contains something of how we're interpreting what we think God is saying. And it seldom comes through pure and simple. And we have to discern and test and weigh. By the way, it's for this reason amongst many others that prophecy in our day is no threat to the Scriptures at all. You know, some guys get their knickers in a hang of a knot. You know, theologians like me, they get very exercised. No, we can't have prophecy in the church today because the word of God is final and prophecy adds to it. No, it doesn't add to it. It takes what's already in the word of God and it applies it into our lives. Now, it helps us understand and explain things. And it, it helps us to move into the future with assurance. Actually, this Word of God, the written Word of God, the Bible, is our prime vehicle for testing prophecy. Prophecies don't override, don't add anything new to the Scripture. The Scripture tests them to see if they're accurate and, and God-given. Lastly, the episode with Agabus teaches us that we mustn't prematurely try and interpret prophecy. Again, boy, I've heard this a lot of times. Somebody will bring a prophecy and, and, you know, there is a ring about genuine prophecy. You hear and your whole spirit just says, yes. And often because it's confirming something that we really know, intuitively at least. But then somebody else jumps up and says, this is what that means? And then somebody else says, no, 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 no. I think you got that slightly wrong. You know, what, what it means is this and that. Look, best let prophecy ring out like a clear bell and allow the object, the person to whom it's directed, sort out what it means. Weigh it, deliberate on it, pray about it, think about it, instead of leaping to interpretation. Look what happened here. 
Luke, who was accompanying them and who wrote the book of Acts, I already read to you what he said. He said, when we heard this, when we heard this prophecy from Agabus, we and the people pleaded with Paul not to go. They got it wrong. That wasn't the interpretation. Oh, Paul, don't go. Paul, don't go. Paul said, of course I'm going. I know I've got to go. Why are you breaking my heart with this nonsense? Keep quiet, man. God has told me I must go to Jerusalem, that these things will happen. So we mustn't rush to interpretation. Allow the thing to sit in our spirit, test it against the scriptures, weigh it carefully. Okay, now to complete the picture, I need to bring to you what Paul himself then later taught in 1 Corinthians 14 particularly about prophecy. Now, this is not a Bible study. I'm not going to take another hour. Relax. I'm not going to take you through the whole of 1 Corinthians 14. I'm just going to flit across the surface. Just think of a... A little bee with a torch going, spotlight on this, spotlight on that, spotlight on the other thing. So this is not going to be a comprehensive teaching, just to complete what we've really learned from Agapus. First of all, Paul teaches that prophecy is one of the nine, at least nine, wonderful manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Through his people, for his people. But he goes further. He says... It's actually a very, very important gift. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 14.1. He said, Eagerly desire spiritual things, especially prophecy. Now, he had just given us a list including miracles, including healings and things of that nature. And within that context he says, But you, eagerly desire prophecy. He's highlighting it as something of real importance to the church. Two verses further on, he goes and gives the major reasons for prophecy in our day. He says this. A, he tells us it's for believers. It's part of the ministry of the body to the body. And he says that it's for their upbuilding, encouragement, and comfort. Prophecies in the church today are almost invariably TLC and not condemnation and judgment. It's to build us up. It's to give us a hope for the future. It's to assure us of God's presence in our lives. It's to warn us sometimes of things that are happening so that we can love Him more and we can be more confident of, the, of what happens in our futures. It's to help to understand things that are happening to us right now. It's upbuilding and edifying. Would you believe that I've actually heard a prophetic word once, years and years and years ago, which went like this. Thus says the Lord, you make me sick. I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. (laughs) Hang on. Something wrong here. This is God speaking to his beloved children. Yes? Not. Paul has told us what we should expect in the congregation of the saints, as far as prophecy is concerned. Secondly, prophecy has a value for unbelievers as well. In 1 Corinthians 14, verses 22 and 25, very, very difficult passage, because of the wording and and the way it's framed. So I'm going to give you the Chris Pepler's potted pen picture, unauthorized translation. Paul says, listen guys, 
If you are all speaking in tongues simultaneously in a church meeting, chaotically, and somebody comes in who is not a believer, who is maybe a seeker after truth, or, or just an unbeliever, he will think that you're all bonkers. That's a very wild translation. But if you are prophesying, then the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. And he'll be cut to the very core of his being. And he'll fall on his knees and say, Surely God is among you. You see, so true prophecy also has a wonderful impact on folk who don't yet know him and, and draw him into a relationship with him. So it's primarily for believers, but it also has an application for for those who are not yet disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then Paul instructs that all prophecy must be weighed carefully and evaluated. In John in 1 John 4, 1, John calls this testing the spirits. Now, first of all, a prophecy must be tested. Is this from God or isn't it? That's the first question. Am I hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit here or is this another voice I'm hearing? And the way we test it is against the scripture, not through proof texting. It's not through trying to find a verse here that sort of lines up. Does this conform to the revelation of God in and through the Lord Jesus Christ as revealed in his written word, the scripture? That's the first test. And we can actually even ask the Holy Spirit to give us another gift, which is called the discerning of spirits, which also helps us. Lord, as I test this against the scripture, won't you please Help me to discern the spiritual source and origin of this. As I said earlier, prophecy today is tainted by fallible, frail human beings. I'll give you an extreme example of this. Now, what I'm going to tell you now is a bit of a, a gag that's been doing the rounds in Pentecostal churches for the last 40 years. So I don't know if it's true or not, but it tickles me, so I'll repeat it. It goes like this. Person stands up in a congregation one Sunday and says, Thus saith the Lord, as I said to my servant Moses, or was it Abraham? Mm, no. <laughs> There's an awful lot of the human being in that one. You know, they might have well just said, Ah, oh, the Lord, I'm not confused. But here, and listen to this one. Please listen to this carefully. We also test and weigh to make sure that it's appropriate for the occasion. See, a word of prophecy might be for a whole congregation. If it is, the best way to test that out is to actually come to the elder on duty and just say, listen, I think the Holy Spirit is saying this to us as a people. What do you say? Now that elder on duty might confer with another elder and then they'll either say one of two things to you. Yes, that's genuine and right. Speak it out. Everybody needs to hear this. Or they might say, well, let's, I'll tell you what, let's have a nice cup of coffee after the service and discuss this a bit further. But either way, they will be gentle because that's what our elders are there for, to, to help us to discern. I actually think there's a huge amount of comfort in this. We have around us a body where we, that can help us to test these things. We don't have to go flying out on, on a limb on something where we shouldn't. It's also sometimes directed to an individual within the congregation. And if it's for the individual, sometimes it gets spoken out if that serves a purpose, but often it's just to that individual. It happened this morning at the 8 o'clock service. 
So Owen and I are sitting in the executive suite there, behind the glass, before the worship group joined us for prayer. And I remember us praying, Lord, before I even get up to preach this word about prophecy, won't you please confirm by bringing prophecy through one of your people? And I'm sitting here, and suddenly I hear somebody muttering and talking quietly during the worship time just over here. I look over my shoulder, in my peripheral vision I see a young young child, I suppose about 10, 11 years old maybe, sitting with his parents. And a lady has got up from somewhere, I couldn't see her face, and she came and told me afterwards it was her. And I just saw this lady come up behind him, put her hand on his shoulder and start to prophesy into his life, just quietly and gently, because it was for him, nobody else. And she in fact was affirming to him, saying, you know, you are so much in God's plan. Keep strong, young man. Pull through because God has got some wonderful things for you. Be strong in the Lord. His dad was sitting right next to him, so his dad heard and could test that with him. And they could go away upbuilt, edified, encouraged. And nobody else needed to know that. Just them. I'll give you a slightly different example of what happened a long, long time ago with me. It was in the days of long, long ago, just before Noah started to build the ark. You know, one of those days long ago. And I was called back to go and do teaching at a men's camp, men's retreat for the church in Port Elizabeth that Pat and I had come from. We were living in the Transvaal at the time. And this whole men's retreat was about 40, 50, 60 men. And it started with a prayer meeting at 6.30 in the morning, the Saturday morning. So see this thing. Here we are sort of sprawled on the carpet in this church sanctuary area. And we're praying together, etc. And it's cold. And it's 6.30. Suddenly my eye falls on a man sitting on the carpet over there. And as I look across at him, I know that I must prophesy something to him. And I know coming into my heart and mind is the, the, the gist of what needs to be said to him. But don't ask me why, but only the Holy Spirit can tell me why. I had to sing it to him. At 6.30. You know, even when my voice is warmed up, hey, I'll tell you what, it's still not going to win any talent contests. Sheesh. Anyway, you've got to be obedient when the Holy Spirit is convicting you. So I started to sing over this poor guy. But you know, the, the word of prophecy was, man, stop what you're doing. You're heading for disaster. Stop right now. Do not take another step today down the path you have planned. Turn and fall on your knees before the living God. And this man starts blubbing and crying. And all the guys gather around him and they're laying hands on him. And he then tells everybody what's happening. So that's why it had to be done in public. Because he needed to confess in public. And he said, you know what? I've been building this relationship with a girl at work. He was a married guy. And it was getting pretty hot and steamy. And we had agreed that today, after this prayer meeting, I was going to go and meet her and we are going to go to a hotel room. And God grabbed him just like that and stopped him in his tracks and turned him away from that. Why it had to be sung, I don't know. Maybe he was a musician. Maybe he understood that. I don't know. But I know it was for him. And the moment was right. So we need to discern what's the occasion. If it's for direction for the church, it should never be given out in a, in a public meeting. It should be brought to the leaders. 
If somebody ever has a prophecy which says, gosh, I really think God wants us as a church to da-da-da-da, well, you don't blurt it out at the 6.30 service. You ask to see the elders and you lay it before them and say, guys, I think I really think this is what God's saying. Now, take it. You guys take it and weigh it. And if you don't do anything about it, then the responsibility is on your shoulders, not mine. I've delivered it. Okay, let me close by again affirming why I chose Agabus. I chose Agabus to preach on because I believe that prophecy is an important thing in the church of today. We, we need to be open to it. We need to expect it. We need to have hearts which eagerly desire prophecy, which reach out and embrace. And, and when we come together, there should be an attitude of our heart which says, Oh God, please speak. To, if possible, speak through me. Otherwise, speak through somebody else that we know your, your, your voice ringing out in our, in our meeting. Ah, what confidence that brings. How, how that builds us up. How, how we walk away saying, God is good. You know, he said that and that person could not possibly have known that God is good. God is good. Let me conclude as Paul concludes in 1 Corinthians 14. He says, therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy. If it applies to them, it must surely apply to us. There's a lot more to teach on prophecy. I have, as I said earlier, I've just flitted across the surface, merely highlighting the things which I think complete the teaching from Agabus. But it's not up to me to decide when and how we should bring more teaching. That's up to Adam and Carlos. If they determine that we should have more teaching on the subject, then I'm sure they will schedule a Bible study or a series of sermons or whatever it is. My purpose only was to just shine a light and say, it's important, church. We should desire these things. They are precious gifts from the Holy Spirit. Oh, please don't argue about whether they are current for today. They are current for today. And always have been, and the Word of God is abundantly clear about that. Our task is not to heckle about prophecy, but to embrace. And in an orderly, wonderful fashion, respond the way that we are taught in the Scriptures. Weigh, carefully, evaluate, act in obedience, bless the body. Amen.